This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks for a free downloadable copy in PDF form of this book. Productive Christians in an Age of Guilt Manipulators, A Biblical Response to Ronald J. Sider by David Chilton, published by Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas, copyright 1981. Chapter 10. Cultural Bone Rot. All income should be given to the poor after one satisfies bare necessities. Any Christian who takes for himself any more than the plain necessaries of life, Wesley insisted, lives in an open habitual denial of the Lord. He has gained riches and hellfire. Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, page 172. Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. Colossians 2, 16-18 Now Isaac sowed in that field and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, And the Lord blessed him, and the man became very rich, and continued to grow richer, until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds, and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Genesis 26, 12-15 Envy is the greatest disease of our age. It is often confused with jealousy and covetousness, which have to do with wanting the possessions and privileges of others. Envy is much more insidious and deadly. Envy is the feeling that someone else's having something is to blame for the fact that you do not have it. The principal motive is thus not so much to take, but to destroy. The envier acts against the object of his envy, not to benefit himself, but to cut the other person down to his own level, or even below. The American Puritan divine Samuel Willard defined envy as a man's repining at his neighbor's prosperity, looking upon himself to be hurt by it. In his massive study of envy, Helmut Scheck points up this central factor. The envious man's conviction that the envied man's prosperity, his success, and his income are somehow to blame for the subject's deprivation for the lack of that that he feels. It can be summed up in Pierre-Joseph Proudhon's famous epigram, Property is Theft. This explains why envy and malice are inseparable. As we can see from the example in Genesis quoted above, the envier's goal is destruction. Henry Hazlitt writes, The envious are more likely to be mollified by seeing others deprived of some advantage than by getting it for themselves. It is not what they lack that chiefly troubles them, but what others have. The envious are not satisfied with equality. 
They secretly yearn for superiority and revenge. And it is this envious, destructionist mentality nursing itself on the notion that your wealth is the cause of my poverty, that the basic ethos of socialism. For socialism does not and cannot build up capital. It seeks only to expropriate or destroy the capital of others. It exalts a malignant, misanthropic disposition into an article of political economy, a machine for tyranny. Socialism is institutionalized envy. Does Ronald Sider envy the rich? He would, I assume, deny the charge. We must examine his writings for the answer, though. The guilt-inspiring title of his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, certainly implies that the wealth of the rich is somehow to blame for the hunger of the poor. Is wealth a cause of poverty? Consider the following declarations. The ever-increasing affluence among the rich minority is one of the fundamental causes of the present crisis. Our ever-increasing affluence is at the heart of the problem. God cast down the wealthy and powerful precisely because they became wealthy by oppressing the poor. The rich regularly oppress the poor and neglect the needy. The rich neglect or oppose justice because justice demands that they end their oppression and share with with the poor. Frequently, the rich are wealthy precisely because they have oppressed the poor or have neglected to aid the needy. The envious man does not stop at merely bewailing the fact that the rich are to blame for the plight of the poor. He nurtures this hatred of his enemy. Regardless of his own advantages, he cannot bear to think of the object of his envy enjoying anything. The evil Haman, grand vizier of Persia, was able to recount many privileges granted him by the king. Esther 5, 11, and 12. Yet all this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Verse 13. Thus the envier acts to destroy others, to hurt them in some way. It is of little concern whether he himself actually benefits. One does not lift up the world, a revolutionary leader once remarked, one burns it. Therefore, as we have already observed, the primary aim of much social legislation today is not to benefit the poor, but to penalize the rich, or more likely the middle class. (coughs) When we envy... We rejoice in the misfortune of others, provided that they had some sort of perceived or assumed privilege. We like to think that they deserve to be brought down. Even when a bad man falls, we rejoice not so much because he was God's enemy, but because he was prosperous. An obvious example is the Watergate period when many were less concerned with the actual violations of law than in watching the mighty dethroned. I constantly ran into people whose ignorance of the specific allegation was abysmal. 
but who nevertheless chortled with glee that they finally got what was coming to them. Another example is the resentment of many toward Hugh Hefner, whose way of making money is certainly deplorable and unbiblical, but our indignation is doubtless fueled considerably by the fact that he is rich in the first place, especially since we who are pure don't make as much money. <coughs> so envy is motivated toward destruction. Socialist policies are geared particularly toward plunder, and notwithstanding Sider's seeming care for the poor, his specific suggestions have nothing to do with capital accumulation and the growth of real wealth, which are biblical means of overcoming poverty. <coughs> Instead, he wants to steal. Well, that's not putting it charitably. He wants other people to steal. And the primary motive is to hurt the rich by majority vote. Consider first an apparently harmless statement on the duties of missionary activity in poor countries. Quote, Why have missionaries so often taught Romans, but not Amos, to new converts in poor lands? In reply, it may be said that the book of Romans is a handy summary of Christian theology and contains in capsule form practically all the major teachings of Scripture, and the last five chapters do speak a great deal about community and our duties to one another. Moreover, Romans was written for new converts. Amos was not. But Cider has a point. Amos is Scripture too. There's no reason why it shouldn't be taught, so long as it's not a cover for the gospel according to Mark's. Erasmus, after listening to John Colette's lectures on the epistles of Paul, exclaimed, I could hear Plato himself speaking. Considering Sider's tendency to read social revolution into the prophets, that danger is very real indeed. Consider, cross-cultural missionaries need not engage in politics, but they must carefully and fully expound for new converts the explosive biblical message that God is on the side of the poor and oppressed. The poor will learn quickly how to apply biblical principles to their own oppressive societies. Especially if we drop a few hints. How does Sider think the oppressed should apply these explosive principles? Two concrete examples are land reform and nationalization of foreign holdings. Love those euphemisms. I'm not stealing your property. I'm reforming it. Notice the moral twist in Sider's call for land reform, where he states that the poor want the land of the wealthy, but the wealthy don't want them to confiscate it. Hmm. Do we want to continue supporting that kind of injustice? Huh? Did I miss something? Theft is injustice. Theft is justice now. Protection of property is injustice. An explosive message to be sure. But I can't, can't find it in my concordance. See if it's in yours. Sider goes on to give Chilean pre President Salvador Allende 
honorable mention for expropriating copper mines owned by U.S. companies on the basis that the high profits they earned had gone to the investors, resulting in the malnutrition of millions of children. While we can sympathize with the condition of these children, and since the story came straight from the upright Mr. Allende, I see little reason to doubt its variety, veracity. The issue here is theft. Concern for the poor has long been used as a justification for all sorts of crime. Judas Iscariot, who was a thief, is a prime example. John 12:4-6 Those who profess to be so high-minded that they can treat the law of God in this manner should at least have the honesty to abandon the facade of biblical Christianity. But then a man who brazenly advocates theft won't flinch at lying. But there is much more to Ronald Sider's tactics than envy than what we have already seen. A comparatively recent phenomenon not envisaged by men such as Samuel Willard is the use of envy to manipulate the object of envy into feeling guilty for being envied. He is made to believe that he really is responsible for the sufferings of others, that his wealth is actually a cause of poverty in other people. When envy is so pervasive in society, when it is positively encouraged by our leaders and preachers in particular, we turn the envy back on ourselves and feel guilty for what we possess. A central motive in socialistic reformers is to cause an orgy of self-flagellation among property owners. A humorous example is that of a woman who is distressed because her grass is green. The following poem is not intended as a joke. It appeared quite seriously in the Christian century. Priorities. My lawn is green and lush, by fertilizer fed. The soil for the crops of the world grows poor. We can smile at such fertilized silliness. But the next example shows the awful links to which the inverted envy can lead. I cannot even express my utter disgust and deep sadness at the moral blindness of a writer in a recent issue of The Other Side. Randall Basinger, a philosophy teacher at a Christian college in Kansas, writes of his emotional turmoil at the successful delivery of his infant son. He admits that, Deep in my heart, I wanted to praise God for the beautiful event that had occurred. More than ever before, I felt the urge to utter a joyful prayer of thanksgiving. But the words just wouldn't come. Why not? Read on. I found my mind wandering from the plush, resort-like suburban hospital in which I was standing to the crowded wards of inner city institutions. I thought of parents and soon-to-be-born children who seldom reap the benefits of our advanced medical technology. Would husbands in the broken ghettos of the inner city experience the same joy I was experiencing? 
Would those unborn children have the same safe passage into the world as my son? Would their mothers come through the birth process as well as my well-doctored wife? Then my circle of thought broadened to parents in other areas of the world. Enforced ignorance, poor sanitation, deficient diets, rank poverty, and scarce or non-existent medical care. These were no doubt having their effect on many a mother and newborn child. What were the husbands of those wives and the fathers of those children experiencing? Was their joy at the birth of their firstborn? I thought about those who lived before the onset of modern medicine. For my wife and myself, the threatening breach position of our unborn child had been no threat at all. And yet for countless parents through the centuries, the threat had been very real and often fatal. Those, ex those grieving fathers, far removed by time, were nonetheless a very real and quite disturbing presence in my mind. In the face of all this suffering, both past and present, how was I to pray? Was I to praise and give thanks to God for what I had experienced? To thank God for all that had happened was to presuppose that God had caused it to happen. At first this seemed quite acceptable. But I cringed as I became aware of where this ultimately led. For if God had providentially caused these good things to happen in our lives then must not God also be directly responsible for the misery, pain, and death experienced by so many others around the world? Sure, I could praise God's goodness to me, but what would that imply about God's character in view of the ugliness and evil that so many others experience? And so I couldn't bring myself to utter that prayer of thanksgiving. I couldn't thank God for being kind to me while ignoring the desperate needs of so many others. I knew that if that's the kind of God we have, then our God isn't just. If that's the kind of God we have, then somehow our God is at least indirectly responsible for the evil in the world. And that's not the kind of God I want. Besides, I thought such a prayer wouldn't even be very realistic. It sounds simple and pious to say, Thank you, God, for what you have brought about in my life. But how well does that square with reality? Had not a host of this worldly factors been instrumental in making my son's birth successful? Why shouldn't my wife have given birth to a healthy child? She lives in a society and a time where tremendous medical knowledge and services are available. She is well-educated. She knows how to take advantage of the best medical facilities. She has the money necessary for the best of medical care. And she is a member of a socioeconomic class that gives her easy access to all of that. The deck of life is stacked my wife and I were among the lucky ones. An abundance of social and historical factors played a major role in our good fortune. 
And the lack of those factors often brings tragedy to others. To a large extent, we were simply at the right place at the right time. How easy and natural it would have been for me to thank God for causing my wife's delivery to turn out right. Pious it would have been, but such a prayer would have also encouraged me to focus only on what was going on in my life or in my own family's life, which is the same thing. And by so doing, I would have become less sensitive to the needs of others. In addition, by emphasizing God's direct responsibility for our, for our particular blessings, we ignore those social and economic factors that have made the blessings, that made the blessings possible. And given the way our world is set up, those very same factors are often bringing untold hardships to others. By appealing to divine providence, we ignore that reality. We don't have to deal seriously with the fact that so many of our blessings are built on the backs of the poor. Hmm. Usually, this is back to... David Chilton, usually the articles in the other side make me angry. This one made me weep as well, not so much for the guilt manipulator who could write such trash, but for his son who must grow up in that kind of an atmosphere. The fact that this garbage is becoming more popular indicates that we are on the verge of cultural suicide. Cider's whole ministry can be seen as one of guilt manipulation. His fable of the Indian prime minister threatening to blow millions into oblivion makes us feel responsible. The United States has an unjust division of the earth's food and resources, and our right to use them is superseded by the human rights of the rest of the world. The poor nations suffer because... We use more fertilizer, eat more fish and beef, and generally consume more than other people do. White schoolchildren are guilty of the terrible sin of getting a better education and thus better job opportunities because their parents pulled them out of an inner city school. We are all guilty of Mexico's oppression of the farmers. We are all guilty of the profits made by U.S. companies in other nations, profits which constitute foreign aid from poor people to us. Profits from these countries are unjustly high. Every North American benefits from these structural injustices. You participate in unjust structures which contribute directly to the hunger of a billion unhappy neighbors. The proper conclusion is that injustice has become embedded in some of our fundamental economic institutions, so much so that, the, that it is impossible to live in North America and not be involved in unjust social structures. If you're having trouble bearing the weight of all that guilt by yourself, Cider offers some comfort, hastening 
To make it clear that he does not want to suggest that 214 million Americans bear the sole responsibility for all hunger, starvation, and injustice in today's world. No, of course not. All countries of the rich northern hemisphere are directly involved. At least we're not alone, and generously, Sider includes himself in all this flogging. He confesses that he paid $50 for an extra suit, and that money would have fed a starving child in India for about a year. Well, if you live in this continent, it's tough being righteous all the time. Come to think of it, the money I spent on Cider's book would have fed that kid for over a month. A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. Proverbs 14, verse 30. Envy destroys the man who commits it. He does not work for the future and the glory of God. He cannot fulfill the purpose for which he was created. His frustration increases. He can't enjoy what he has, for he is eaten up by what others have, or when he turns the envy in upon himself, by what others do not have. We should take the verse literally to some extent. Envy has very serious physical consequences. Because man is a whole person, God's curse on sin affects the whole man. You can quite literally be eaten up by envy. More than this, envy is a rot on the foundations of society. If the cultural ethic is the destruction of anyone who owns something which others don't own, the result is chaos. And if you are fearful of your neighbor's envy, you won't produce. Success and productivity become dangerous, and the whole culture declines. A civilization dominated by envy has rottenness in its bones. It is doomed to extinction. Wrath is cruel, and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? Proverbs 20, 27, verse 4. The kind of cultural rot that sets in is terrifying, as described by Edward C. Banfield's The Moral Basis of a Backward Society. George Gilder is right. Rather than wealth causing poverty... It is far more true to say that what causes poverty is the widespread belief that wealth does. The only cure for this malaise is a sound heart, an attitude of contentment with God's providential government in your life. He is the one who raises up and puts down, and your advantages or lack of them are from Him. Samuel Willard said this in 1706. We are never the worse in ourselves because another enjoys a prosperous condition. It is of God that his state is such, and it in no way makes ours other than it is. To envy men the prosperity which God bestows upon them is to hate them without a cause. And when they have offered us no real affront or provocation, it is an affront 
offered to the divine sovereignty. It is God who lifts men up and puts them down. He is the supreme disposer of all the affairs of the children of men. It implies a fault found with his government of the world, as if he dealt unjustly and did not distribute his favors either in wisdom or righteousness. It envies God his glory in the world, in that it is angry if he be glorified by another, because he thinks that in so doing he outshines him and darkens his light. It despises and reflects upon the gifts and favors of God as if they were lost because they are not concentered on Him. If you have needs, the Bible commands you to pray. Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. To be content. Philippians 4, verse 5, 8 and 12. And to work, First Timothy, or First Thessalonians four verse eleven, and God who hears the cry of the poor will supply your needs, Philippians four verse nineteen. We have a wealthy father, and under his care we can be at peace, regardless of our financial standing. But he, but this requires obedience to him. Seeking him as the source of wealth, Deuteronomy eight eighteen, and finding our happiness in obedience to his law. God's law does not God's law does bring physical material blessing to a culture. For one thing, the society's ethic is not envy, but obedience to God. This makes for both social stability and economic growth. The land prospers when people are at least externally obedient to biblical law, when they allow their neighbors to prosper, when they allow even wicked men as long as they remain externally obedient to develop the earth. God will catch up with the ungodly. Psalm 37, 1 through 11. And if they in the meantime abide by his commands... We have nothing to worry about. It is easy to point a finger at the culture around you. But don't forget, you are the culture. Get the log out of your own eye and don't seek legislation and the long arm of the state to rid your neighbor of the moat in his. Envy is a cheat. It will destroy you and your culture much more than any enemies, imagined or real, will do. The biblical ethic of contentment does not mean a lack of drive or ambition. It does not mean apathy or inaction regarding the genuine injustice in the world. But it does mean that we are not revolutionaries. We look neither to the state nor to chaos to achieve personal fulfillment or social improvement. Our aim is dominion under God's rule. We seek progress within a stable structure fenced in by the law of God. Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior 
his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James three thirteen through 18 The politics of envy and guilt is nothing other than class hatred and war. It is a blight on the soul, a rottenness eating at the foundations of culture. No society can long survive it. The nation that fails to overcome it through faith and obedience will fail. As we have seen, it reduces man to impotence and frustration. The man who succumbs to it is rendered unable even to pray. And that assuredly is the sociology of Satan. It is but a step away from hell. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.